0: I would like to welcome you all to the second week of Drisha's Winter's Mon and the second of two classes called Tasting the Tanakh on the role of food in biblical narratives with Rabbi Joe Wolfson. Um, I do see plenty of familiar faces here today, so I'm sure you all remember Rabbi Wolfson. Um, So we're going to jump right into the session. Um, And with that, Rabbi Joe Wolfson.
1: Hello, everybody. Thank you so much, Sarah. Thank you, everyone, for coming back and if there's anyone who wasn't here the first time on on Tuesday, welcome. Very excited to be here. Torah and food are definitely two of my very favorite things. Um, I do have a cup of tea here this time. Played a role in the last uh, last class what we would let other people prepare for us. Um, Welcome everybody. Lovely to have everyone here. On Tuesday, we took a very broad overview it was really quite a quite a run through i think we took seven or eight big meta themes which connect which on the roles that food plays in tanakh we spoke about food whether it is provided to other people or withheld from other people as being one of the primary ways in which the tanakh describes the ideal society that it wants or, by contrast, a, a cruel avaricious society. Welcome Lewis, welcome Jonah, everyone who's just joined. We saw how food in Tanakh is used as a fascinating metaphor. Sometimes it is used if not just uh, people or animals which eat, but countries, lands themselves are described as eating or devouring or vomiting, it's really uh, a a deep-rooted metaphor. What we're going to do today though is to focus on two stories, Uh, we're going to divide our time between them, in which I think food plays a very significant role in the story itself. It's not simply a theme reference, but rather it's at the heart of the story. The two passages that we're going to look at are very different from one another, and also the role that food is going to play in the passages is also different from one another. In the latter passage, the food is the story. That's at the heart of it. You, You can't miss it. It jumps right out of you. In the first story, however, it's going to be somewhat more nuanced. The first story that we are going to look at is the story of Yitzhak and his sons, Yaakov and Esav. Um, perhaps just a little word on method. Um, I received a couple of emails uh, after the previous class. I really appreciate people being in touch. It's, uh, it's great. Um, One of the emails um, asked me about the use of midrash and the use of later commentaries as a way of explicating the text. I won't go too in-depth on this now, but I will just say that there are certainly um, differences between what we call pshat and drash, the simple straightforward reading of the text and later rabbinic interpretations of it. However, and this is not the time to debate this or to prove this, however, it is my belief that very frequently the later commentaries are drawing out of the text ideas which are already latent in it. And so although a midrash may describe something which is clearly not obviously present in the text, a lot of the time I would Suggest it is picking up on something and just making that which is implicit explicit. So that's just a little note as to um, part of the way in which I like to use later commentaries as well. Let's get into the story of Yitzhak, Yaakov, and Esau. Here we go. And should say, as said last time, and as uh, Sarah said again the start. Please do participate. Share your ideas. You can either put your hand up, or you can um, you can uh, say just directly. Would love to really make it collaborative. Wow, just seeing now where everybody's from, from: Paris, Colorado, even New Jersey. Very exotic. Um, great to great to have such a such a range. Okay, people are seeing my screen. Okay. Good, so we're gonna begin with the early years of Yaakov and Asaf. Yitzhak is married to Rivka. 40 years old Yitzhak was when they married. Nevertheless, sadly, tragically, like both her mother-in-law and her daughter-in-law, Rachel in the future, she struggles to have children. The story is not as thick and described as with either of the uh, generations to either side of her. However, it actually takes 20 years for her to become pregnant. When she is pregnant, verse 22, she feels the, the boys, the children uh, struggling, as this translation, in her womb. Really feels like something is going on. She goes to ask a question. God what exactly that means not completely clear receives a message which is not our topic for now but is going to become the core engine of the story Ravi okay the two children are born they emerge the first one red hairy they call him aaf afterwards comes out his younger brother holding on his older brother's heel they call him. Yaakov. Okay, let's now join the story proper. Verse 27. The boys grow up. Isav is a man who knows how to hunt. Ish A man of the field. Yaakov is a simple person, a mild person who stays in the tents, stays in the camps. The image I always have in my mind, he's bookish, right? He stays at home. He reads. Yitzchak loved Esav. Kitsayad Literally, the game was in his mouth, the game meaning the hunt. Verivka ohevet et Yaakov. Rivka loved Jacob. What do we notice in that verse? Is there let, let, let's break, break it down a little bit. On the one hand, it seems to be sort of. Uh, structured in such a way as to divide, provide a sort of symmetry between parents and children. But is it actually symmetrical? No. Uh, Beth, right? Right. It's Beth. So it, what, doesn't, what are you it doesn't for?
2: say why Rivka preferred Yaakov.
1: Very good. I mean, she doesn't say why and perhaps it, there isn't a why, right? It, there's no reason is, is given. By contrast, do you want to carry on Beth? Well, by contrast,
2: the the text informs us that Yitzchak loved Esau, it doesn't say preferred, it says loved because uh, we presume that he provided um, gain, that he provided him with food.
1: There's a very particular reason, Mm -hmm. right? Very particular reason Given any other differences notice, noted in the text, the uh, the tense. Very good. Go on, Beth. Do carry on. Uh, well,
2: the is so it's 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 um, the past. Mm-hmm. It's a, it says it, have it, the past tense, and it uh, is is uh, present continuous.
1: Very good. Your your reading is already um, already uh, there in the writings of the great sixteenth century commentator, the Kli This difference in tense, what what does it provide you with, Beth? Sort of what what impact does it have on how you understand the difference between how the parents love the children?
2: Hmm. Good question.
1: Does it connect up with your first point, right? Your first point was, Rivka seems to love Yaakov unconditionally.
2: Right, There's no reason
1: right. attached to it.
2: So it could, it could be ongoing. Whereas good. if the Sayyid steps, the Ahava uh, steps.
1: Good, very, very good. Let's now sort of try and inhabit for a second what it's like to be Yaakov within this verse. How does he experience his mother's love? Overwhelming, or if not overwhelming, all-encompassing, ongoing, not connected to any particular thing he does, enveloping. What about his father? Now, does it mean, you're quite right, Beth, I think you said, it doesn't say Yitzhak preferred Asav, implying that even if he preferred Asav, he still loved Yaakov or had some feelings of affection to him. It's completely silent about how his father feels towards him. It doesn't say anything at all. He's deprived of the flow of his father's love. I'm going to, there's a a wonderful book. I don't know if anyone's seen it. Um, It's called Wrestling Jacob. I have here, uh, by a wonderful man called Rabbi Shmuel Klitzner, lives in Uh Wrestling Jacob is, interestingly, the um, quote from a letter by Sigmund Freud, whose father was called Jacob, and who uh, once wrote uh, that he felt that his whole life he was wrestling Jacob. Mm. Um, Shmuel Klitzner is very interested in combining very close readings with psychological insights. I'm gonna just read a few lines um, from from his description. In verse 28, our verse, the asymmetry is poetic and painful as each of the two parents love only one child. The father's love is conditional based on a ritual between father and son involving the provision of food. The mother's love is unconditional, yet directed to one son exclusively. Is the silence with regards to Yitzchak's affection for Yaakov indicative of what he feels or of what he is capable of communicating? Perhaps the reader is being made to hear the silence that the son's hear. We are made to experience a fraction of the anxiety and doubt of Yaakov and Asa. Now he says something quite interesting. He says conventional psychological insight often sees the ongoing love of the mother figure as an encompassing love that totally embraces the child as an indistinguishable part of herself, as indeed the child in the womb once was. The father figure sees the child as a separate entity that will be bound to him by the love that the child will earn and deserve. This dichotomy is too simplistic and generally subject to the particular constellations of greatly differing family dynamics. However, in this case, the text seems to support the cliche to a greater extent than one would have expected. Mm -hmm. Very interesting, very, very interesting. Okay, let's carry on. And again, please, people do share thoughts, add in at any moment. Vayazed Yaakov Nazid. Yaakov was once cooking a stew. Vayavu Esav min hasadeh we call A ayeth. comes from the field tired. Vayomil Esav el Yaakov Feed me. It's such a, such a sort of physical language. Shovel it down. Give me this red, red stuff. I'm exhausted. For this, he was called Edom, the red, red stuff. Then we have the story of the selling of the birthright where Yaakov will trade. This stew in return for the birthright. I want to just pause though at this, at this moment. In fact, let's even jump back a second. Why does Yitzchak love Asav? What was presented in the text?
3: Because he, says he feeds
1: him. He feeds him. Excellent. I want to show you a comment of the Ramban, Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman. On this. Can people see it. Um, sorry, it's only the heat. Oh yeah. It. He said the Okay. The commentators explain mm-hmm. the Ibn Ezra, Radak, he sayad He would bring the food. The hunt, the game, to Yitzhak to his mouth, yavi. Okay, he likes the comment but not complete, and he then for makes the following suggestion: the Yitachen It could be. I want to offer the following suggestion, says the says the Ramban. Oh, what happened there? Uh, sorry. Yitachen le Paresh. But ye He Yitzhak et a sub. Yitzhak loved a sub. But why? Because Kiba Fiv shall Yitzhak sayad tamid. It's a great reading. In Yitzhak's mouth all the time was the game. Why did Yitzhak love a sub? Because Yitzchak loved meat. Kitsayad b'fiv. In other words, that kitsayad b'fiv refers almost exclusively to Yitzhak. He carries on and explains, Kol hayom, all day, every day. Yitave, he desired. That's a word we're going to come back to. Leechol et He was, it was. Yitzhak was a carnivore. That is what this Ramban is saying. A real deep carnivore. All day. Dreaming of eating meat, but and it was always in his mouth. Always he was eating meat. He could not eat anything else. And it was him who would bring it to him. He who would bring it to him. It was Asav who would bring it to him. In other words, it's 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 a creative reading, but it's actually very close to the text, if you look back at the text, Yitzchak loved Esav, b'fiv, because in his mouth, in Yitzchak's mouth, was always the meat. Yitzchak was always, almost in, in a way, almost obsessive about eating meat. That's what Yitzchak wanted, that's what Asav provided. Oh, back to verse 29. Yakov was cooking a stew People can see the translation that Safaria has provided Now, I know Yehudi is a true stickler for non-pshat renderings What word has the translator added in there that is not there in the Hebrew? Which persick are you on? 29 there's a word there in the English which is not there in the Hebrew. Damn it. Taste. Once. There are a few options there. Famished is how they're translating IF, even though IF does mean uh, tired more than hungry, but okay. Oh, once. No. Very good. Exactly. Once. Isn't that fascinating? Once. There is no Hebrew word that they are translating it. They are, they are putting that in. In fact, Rashi um, creates a midrashic interpolation. Rashi says that Avraham Avinu, his grandfather, Yitzhak's father, had passed away, and he was cooking food for the bereavement, Right, complete interpolation. I want to show you a comment. This is the comment of the Or HaChaim. Or Hachayim. Great commentator, um, 18th century, I believe. Look at this. This is such a great reading. Vayazed People see where I am? Vayazed Yaakov, Yaakov cooked. Ulai perhaps, ki shira'a legimato shel Since he saw how much it worked, how much it helped that asav him. in other words, how much love his brother received from his father for being able to provide him with food. He decided himself to work out how to cook, how to cook a good stew. Mm. Draw his father's heart close to him just as a Sav had done. This reading is so brilliant. Before we get to the psychological complexity of it, it's a great reading because it does away with any need for the word once. Once implies there is a break. There is something of a a gap between 28 and 29. 28 tells us about which parent loves which child. 29 tells us about a particular occurrence that happened one day. But as we pointed out, there is no word there in the text that signifies once. Rather, verse 29 is a direct continuation of verse 28. Yitzchak loved Esav because he would give him this food. One day, Yaakov, not feeling the love of his father, cooked a dish. How does Yitzhak? Des- how does, pardon me, how does Asav describe that dish in verse 30? Red what sky. is it? Exactly. Ha-adom, ha-adom the dish that Asav sees is red. What are the connotations? What do we sort of feel with that? Blood. Blood, or if, if not quite blood, then at least meat, Right. Now, is it meat? I oh, don't think vegetable. it is. Right? Never heard an interpretation that says it's meat, but rather, what is it? Lentils. Yeah, but, but, but what this is it? Vegetables. We don't know. Red lentils. Everybody, lentils, it's an impossible lentils. burger or beyond burger.
0: <laughs> yeah. Right? Do
1: we get it. He wants to make it look like meat. He can't make meat because he's Ishtam Yoshe right? He's reading books, he's, you know, he's he's pale, he's he's weak, he doesn't know how, how to hunt, right? It's it's an impersonation of a red carnivorous dish that his father would appreciate. There is something, I think, at the same time, both moving and also pathetic in this. It's moving because it's so sad because you know, he wants his father's love and this is how he sees himself being able to get his father's love. It's so never, it's so sad because he can't get what his father actually wants him to do, right? He can't actually get the meat. And then it, it contorted into this horrible exchange of bartering with his brother for, for the birthright. Yehudi, I see you have your hand raised. Well, he certainly could
4: serve meat. I mean, he's a shepherd. He's got plenty of, you know, sheep and, and and goats. All he has to do is slaughter one, exactly like Rifka does, when she wants to basically fool Yitzchak into thinking that, you know, he's getting venison. But at this point, Yitzchak's taste buds are still intact. And I'm going to assume... That he's certainly going to tell that lentil soup is nowhere near anything like venison, and even goat meat is questionable in terms of a similarity to venison. So, a person who has a taste for game, yeah, it was if he really wants to give his father something, yeah, it's really meat. All he has to do is slaughter one of his animals and present his father a meat dish. It's hard to say that lentils is going because it looks red, you can make your uh, sheep meat or goat meat look red just as easily. Just take some of the red stuff and put it into a meat dish.
1: just a suggestion, you don't, need, you don't need to accept it, but I think it's, uh, I just thought it was, uh, you know, I find the Orhachayim's reading so compelling, both textually and psychologically. You see, of course, if you want to take the Ramban's idea that yeah, that Yitzhak needs this meat, obsessed with this meat um, then uh it it, it fits nicely but of course no you don't you don't have to accept let's take the story can I I ask a question please Steve yes sure
4: I I was just kind of thinking about this in a culinary perspective great um not a great cook but lentil stew or lentil soup doesn't smell that great chocolate chip cookies baking that's an aroma that would kind of Attract me, so I'm just wondering was he that starving that that smell of lentils, which is not the best smell, smelled so good that he or was he just famished? He eat
1: anything. And well, there's a phrase in Hebrew, uh, <laughs> um, which mm. means when it comes to flavor and aroma, there's nothing to argue about because uh, everyone has their own personal um loves. And, uh, and and tastes uh but i i don't know if i, if I came back from the field from a, a full day out uh exhausted uh physically drained i think i could uh, imagine myself wanting a stew more than chocolate cookies uh, for yeah the i
5: day. actually i actually love the smell of red lentils oh. <laughs> <There> <laughs> so
1: maybe go. that was, was maybe that was, was just subjective the truth comes out I mean, Z- Zoom does have the capacity for conducting polls. So if people want, we can do a poll of everybody in the class and say chocolate cookies or, uh, <laughs> or, or this. But even so, Asav, I, I think, uh, did seem to like it. But, but Steve, who knows how history would have been different had it been uh, chocolate cookies that uh, uh, Yaku. Maybe he was, was a great
4: good. cook and he's great spices. Uh, I'm just intrigued right. by,
1: you know.
5: <laughs> it could also be sumac as well. The word Iyef uh, yeah, does That's mean famished,
4: and it yep. does not mean exhausted. Okay, same.
1: I, I want to I move us you a little bit further.
4: I can prove that to you. I'll send you an email. Great. Iyef uh, yeah,
1: is um, famished. Let's, uh, let's move the story a little bit further. Time passes, and Yitzchak grows old. Okay, We're in chapter 27
4: of the a blessing story.
1: It was when Yitzhak grew old. His eyes grew dim from seeing. I'm glad you heard he's talking to someone else right now, so he won't get angry with me for what I'm about to say. Does anybody um, familiar with any interpretations of why Yitzhak's eyes grow dim?
2: The smoke from the uh korbanot, the idol worship of Esau.
1: Excellent. That's one Midrashic interpretation. Anybody remember another? That's the first one Rashi quotes. The, the tears the, of the malach from the Akedah. Excellent. Thank you, Judith. When Yitzhak is bound on the altar back in chapter 22 by his father, Avraham raises the knife the angels looking down from heaven, their tears fall into Yitzchak's eyes, and he is blinded by them. Does that have any rootedness in the text itself? Let's carry on. et Esav he calls Esav, his elder son, Vayomer Elav Beni. Says to him, my son, Bayomer Elav Says to him, here I am. Any bells ringing for anybody? Bayomer Elav Benin, Bayomer Elav Hineni. At the Akeda. Very good. Now, admittedly, the phrases appear a number of times in Bereshit, but absolutely the central origin, location for them is in Bereshit chapter 22. Yitzchak turning, well, firstly God calling to Abraham, Ayomer Elav Abraham, says, I'm here. And then on the way, on the journey to Ha'al Mount Moriah, Yitzchak turning to his father and saying, Avi." and his father saying to him, Inani."
4: Here
1: we are, The same character at the end of his life seems to be towards the He's certainly old, saying to his son Beni, and the son says, You feel the the weight of Yitzhak's personal history. Let's actually quickly just uh, jump back uh, to show a nice textual thing in Bereshit chapter twenty-two. one of the other phrases that repeats itself um, many times in the story or pardon, not many times, but a couple of times at least, in the story of the Akedah is the shnei Shnehem People remember that? They walk mm-hmm. together, right? Avraham and Yitzchak walk Together. Right, people see here at the end of verse six, takes the wood with him, takes Yitzchak with him, the fire, the knife. They have the conversation, Yitzchak turns to him, God will show us the offering. The two of them walk together. Robert Alter, a great professor of the uh, of Bible at of Berkeley, uh, he he has one of his techniques that he likes to show in Tanakh is what he calls repetition, repetition, non-repetition. Right, where a phrase is repeated, and then it's held back. The elchusnehem yachdav has appeared twice. The story comes to a close. The angel says to Avraham, "Al tishlach don't." hold out your hand against him there's an alternative offering Yitzchak is saved verse 19 the end of the story Avraham returns to his servants who he's left away away and they go together to Erezheba What's the glaring absence in the verse? Shehem They're not together. Who, who's, not, who's not there? Yitzchak. Yitzchak's It's not there. Brilliant, right? He, he, he's, I mean, not brilliant. Why well, can't it be one of the Narem? Because, I mean, possibly, but it says, Vayeshev Abraham. Abraham. No, it has, says Vayeshev Abraham.
2: And then it says Yeshev
1: later. So it's a play on those two words. Then he's ret- the simple reading of it is Abraham returns to his servants who he's left, and they, Abraham and the servants, then return to Belsheva. R- regardless of what actually physically happened, right. I mean, okay, regardless of the particularities of it, what's very clear from this verse is that Yitzhak is not mentioned. In other words, even if it's not a literal description, as a metaphorical description, Yitzchak remains on the mountain. Yitzhak remains right. at the Akeeda, or to put it in a slightly different way, the Akeda <coughs> remains with Yitzhak. Right. right. it is the overarching theme of Yitzhak's life. And I want to return to chapter 27, and I want to make one suggestion, and it's you don't need to accept it, but it certainly don't need to accept it, but it's a suggestion which once you've heard it, it's hard to forget. yitzhak is old. His eyes are dim. Says, let me drash, dim from the akeda. He calls his son, Beni. His son, Esav, says, Hineni. We're, we're feeling like Har is, is, is heavy here. But Yomer, he says, yomoti, I'm old, I don't know when I'm going to die take your weapons, go out to the field, But go hunt for me my game, remembering what we've already seen, remembering the Ramban, make for me something delicious, as I know it, bring it to me, so that I can, Eat it, but a vote nafshi, so that I can bless you amut before I die. I want to ask a question: Why does Yitzchak love meat so much? Because he was meat a he
2: was a korban. He was almost a korban.
0: He was saved by the meat. He was saved by uh, the korban.
1: The aisle. Beth Elizabeth. Excellent. Very good. It's a it's a chilling suggestion, and of course you don't have to accept it, but it's 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 compelling. Why is it that Yitzhak is obsessed with meat? Kitsayad b'feiv as the Ramban said, it's always in his mouth. That it's what he loves. A for, That it's what Yaakov tries to get his love with. What is it about the meat? It is the meat. Is that relief? that moment of it's not him on the altar it's the alternative torban the alternative offering it's always taking him back there it is such a dark reading but it's such a powerful and uh, and compelling reading as well any thoughts ideas that's that's my take on on Yitzhak Yaakov and a sub here uh, before we move on to our, our next story. Um, any, any sort of suggestions or, or thoughts? Um,
2: can I say something? Oh, sorry, I'm not on video. Um, I'm wondering, I wrote it in the chat, but I'm, I don't know if you can hear me, but I'm yeah. wondering if there's another way of understanding this, um, if there's, and what I wrote in the chat is that it's about very rigid uh, role assignments, much like you know, Cain and Abel this one does. This is a vegetarian. This one's a meat lover, mm, uh, and mm. so much of this whole parsha is about overturning role assignments, right? Mm. So somehow it seems to me that's one thread, perhaps, that may be part of it. Even though your interpretation is very, very interesting, very beautiful.
1: Yeah, um, I think that I think that w- works. It works well um, with it. I mean, such a such a rich, rich story. I mean. I know, if, if we said that uh, when it comes to food and drink, everybody's taste is personal and subjective, that's probably true as well for everyone's favorite Tanakh stories. I think within, if I had to choose one parasha in Bereshit, I think it would be told up. In terms of just where everything is, and I think we always have the feeling in Bereshit that, you know, <laughs> We want to use the triennial cycle, right, of reading the Torah once every three years and be able to enjoy it more slowly. Um, But, I mean, that story, again, again, and again. I mean, we've, again, this is not, we could spend much longer thinking about uh, Yaakov and Asav. There's much, much more to say. I just wanted to approach it through the angle of the food here. But, Ronnie, I think, you know, I think think it doesn't contradict. I think it, it works with it as well, that the, Part of it does seem to be uh, a role definition. Any other thoughts before we? Um... Yes. Uh, oh, hi. Rudy. It seems
4: to me that if my father put a knife to my neck and basically I felt the edge of the knife ready to go to slaughter me, I wouldn't suddenly develop a taste for meat. I develop an aversion to meat. In other words, it seems to me that the that that uh, you know a person who's been almost ended up becoming a chart. Animal carcass himself is not going to suddenly now want to basically spend the rest of his life eating charred animal ca- carcasses I think you have to find a different reason if you want to for, for the fact that he loves, particularly not just meat, but it seems game. He's in Ish Sadeh. Yitzchak is not just, uh, you know, remember what he says at the end? Ra'e, Rafani, Sadeh. He's also the only one of the Avot who actually seriously farms crops. He's basically a man of the ground. And he's a man who basically likes natural things. And, you know, it, 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 he's very close to, uh, you know, that's, that's a facet of his personality, his enterprise. And most likely that's why he likes Asub so much, because Asub is more like him than Yaakov is. I mean, I think you can easily see this as a question of the nature of the people, okay? But also another thing, meat was not a dish that most people just could eat all the time. It was a delicacy. In a time of the Tanakh, the average person only ate meat on a Yom Tovim. They didn't even eat on Shabbat. So as a practical matter, if you're wealthy enough and you have a son who's an author that can put venison on your table all the time, that's an opportunity. That's something that basically you yeah. can get, you know, I wouldn't call it an addiction, but certainly, you know, a habit.
1: Right. Right. Yep. Yep. I mean, I don't, uh, I, uh, I definitely think there's a lot to the idea that Yitzchak sees in a sub, someone similar to him, someone's able to control the ground. In terms of uh, the first idea, I think, uh, I think psychology and trauma work in strange ways. And I don't think uh, that we can necessarily anticipate exactly how a person will respond uh, to an event but in any case it was only a suggestion um, I'm really excited for the second story the second story is I think um, a much more complicated story to read it's strange and enigmatic and really um, if this if this next piece is going to occupy the last half of our second class I have spent significantly more time thinking about it in the run-up to it than I have on any of the rest of it. So perhaps the ideas will come out uh, more. I don't think there is any story in the Torah, maybe even the Tanakh, which is just as um, suffused with food, almost gluttony really, than the story which we are about to read. I don't know if anyone here was at the Drisha Yomiyun on Sunday with um, Rabbi Silber's talk. Uh, he said mm. he was going to speak about it and then he didn't. So that's good. I mm. saw his sheet and I worried <laughs> and he didn't yeah. get to it. Right. OK, good, Beth. Good. So exactly, exactly. So I think what's going to what is going to work well is because this is a complex story and people don't know it. I include myself here anywhere nearly as well as a lot of us know the stories in Bereshit. Let's take a read through it, together. Would people like to do breakout rooms and chabratot for for five minutes on it, or do we prefer to read through? Read through. Read through, through? okay, good. Thank you, I appreciate a a clear answer. Okay, so we are in the book of Bamidbar. Bamidbar begins with the Jewish people still encamped at Hal Sinai, Mount Sinai, where they have been, where they have received the Torah. And a critical um, juncture, a uh, critical axis within the book of Bamidbar comes the end of chapter 10, beginning of chapter 11, when they finally depart from Mount Sinai and begin or resume their journey through the desert to the land of Israel. And it does not go so well. Pretty quickly, things begin to go downhill. The story that we're going to look at is more or less the first story that occurs immediately after leaving. First few verses of the chapter, complex, we're not going to deal with them now. Something happens, the people complain, fire breaks out. Ravages the outskirts of the camp. Not great. We're focusing on the next story. Verse 4. Very quick. One after another. Something, the first three verses, there's a complaint. God angers. Now this story. I'm just going to read through it. Okay? And then we'll sort of pay attention as we read it, and then we'll try and work it out. (laughs) Baha'a Asher b'kiyubot, the riffraff, love that word. In their midst, yes. hitavu taava had a great desiring for Yisshuvu gam Israel, and then the Jewish people, b'nei Israel, began to weep as well. What was it they said? basar, who will give us meat? They carry on. And these are maybe the best Pesukim so that you'll hear all week on this course uh, of Dresha's, uh what is the connections between Jewish texts and food. We remember the fish that we used to eat for free in Egypt, Oh, those cucumbers, oh, the melons, Leeks, onions, garlic. Oh my God, now they are, you know, having a horrendous time in the desert. They're having this desire, this imagining, this imagery. Now where we are, nafshenu our souls are dried up, shriveled. Our gullets are shriveled. Oh, fantastic. We have nothing at all literally there is not everything just this man which is falling from heaven which we have to look at seems to be sort of sickened by the man just desiring of all of the delicacies that they used to have told a little bit, take a little break told what the man looks like there's coriander seed they were told how they'd go and gather it Okay. Verse 10. He hears the people crying, crying in their families. Ish the each one at their tent. God's anger is great. Evil or Distressing to Moshe. Just to put out the question, which uh, it's not immediately obvious the answer to, and we're not going to address it just yet. But I guess I'll ask you guys what what seem what what would be your question on on the verses we we've just read? I and mean, just the imagery is fantastic. It, 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 Anything that sort of jumps out at you? Sorry, Enid, I'm not sure if you're trying to say something. Oh, I'm
3: just—they're yeah. talking about vegetables. Their vegetable descriptions are really good, but it's not meat.
1: Well, it starts with meat. Mi yachilenu Sure. Who who will give us who will give us meat? And then it's uh, it's a buffet. Right?
3: When they get dramatic, it's about vegetables.
1: Right, right. It carries on. They uh, are squeezing last. in the, <laughs> the love of vegetables here. The question that I want to just ask for now is, I mean, what's so bad about it, right? But why the vichara? I mean, no, I don't know about you guys. I, I have uh, cravings quite frequently um, for, <laughs> for various foods, not so often for vegetables, but uh, um, I'm not sure Enid that, I mean, Enid, if you want to answer by saying that the, God's anger was that they were craving vegetables, that would be a very novel interpretation. Um, <laughs> Wasn't the man's? Um, spoke- sorry. No, please, Beth.
2: Wasn't the man supposed to get, have any taste that they wanted it to?
5: Right. Well, why would
2: they, Why would they be unless it was the texture? What it, was it about those foods that they missed when they had the month?
1: That's that's a great that's a great thought. Great great thought. We'll we'll come to it.
5: It's almost like it's almost like they couldn't accept the gift from God
1: fascinating excellent people are these these are excellent thoughts so again beth says because the
5: man it might have been been more like it might have had a different effect and it might have been more harmonious Uh, in a way
1: what do you mean by harmonious
5: like for example i don't there's different ways of thinking about like different foods and and how they affect like people and their minds and stuff but like garlic and onions and meat and all this stuff, it's like things that kind of, it's almost like foods that put you into a, a state of distraction a bit. I'm not saying that like yeah. we shouldn't eat these foods. I'm just saying the manna was something like closer to God. They were food, it wasn't a food that was like a, of lower nature.
1: Good. Okay. The, the, these are all excellent thoughts. And I, I really feel with this chapter, the more you can put in better elana i do not know much at all about um about uh, ancient egyptian diets do you want to expand a little bit on what were major egyptian vegetables
5: hmm. yeah well, not to worry I think, just, not, but... I think just what he said there a lot of uh legumes and and vegetables and stuff
1: Fascinating. Okay. It's interesting that people are putting such an emphasis on the vegetables. Because it does start with Basar, who's going to feed us meat, and we're going to come back to these. Yeah,
5: basal. but a lot of what a lot of what they the vegetables they said are, are mostly used for seasoning and seasoning meat as well.
1: So oh, good one. Good one. Yeah. Okay. We're going to move now to a new level. Okay. The Moshe el Hashem. Moshe says to God, verse 11, Why have you dealt so ill with me, your servant? Why have I not found favor in your eyes? That you place the burden of this whole people upon me. The next image is just amazing. Did I give birth to this people? Did it, they come from me? Sorry, was I pregnant with this people? Did I birth this people? That you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom. As a nurse, a wet nurse, that means, carries an infant to the land you've promised your fathers. Where on earth am I supposed to get meat from to give to this people? They're crying out to me. Lemor saying, "Tnah lanu basar v'nochela." Give us, ma- wa- give us meat to eat. I wonder if that was a joke on the part of the translator that he translated "kiyuku alai" as "they wine before me" I'm going to make this about mm-hmm. meat and wine. Well, I guess that that should be the name of the. Of it could
5: also of just it could also just be as simple as they missed the familiarity of their of their old life. And so, but what I'm
1: particularly interested in here, Jonah. Is why this of all moments should bring Moshe right to absolute crisis? Right, mm-hmm. this, this, this sort of the, the story's progressing now, it's no longer simply about the people have got this huge desire for food. In oh. addition, which is fascinating in itself, and obviously it's going to be connected, but in addition, Moshe is he's this is hurting him, and then he even yeah. says. I can't do this alone. To carry this whole people with me. They're yeah. too, too much for me. We're not going to dwell on this too much, but it does connect back to. Uh, I just want to reference this. You should know this. Anyone familiar with this, uh, the major um, sort of Talmudic and Midrashic interpretation of this verse? Moshe, Ta'am, Mishpachotav. He hears the people crying to their families. No. The major interpretation, sounds very strange when you first hear it. The major interpretation is what Rashi um, cites. So we get the, uh, the Hebrew as well. Raboteinu <laughs> amru crying to their families. Al iskei mishpachot. Al aghayot <laughs> hanesrot lahem. This is about prohibitions on certain intimate sexual relationships which mm. have just been prohibited to them at, at Sinai, Seems like a strange interpretation, yeah. right? Uh, I shared it with my wife the other day. She didn't like it at all. Right, Alana, I see that you've seen it, but there's actually something deeply sort of, you know, resonant with it. We've already noted in the previous class that at points, food and sexual life seem to um,
0: be connected
1: with one another. I think because
5: color. because those are two things that are a big part of like our human nature and balancing that with our spiritual nature.
1: Human nature. It's, what, ground, nature. it's
5: what grounds us in the world.
1: It's required
2: that, for survival.
5: Yeah. But, it can, excellent. but I think that it's, it's a, talking about how that can become it can become such a strong craving that people suffer because of
1: it. Excellent, excellent. All of these are very good. I'll just add on a little bit more. Uh, Daniel Boyarin, excellent uh, Talmudic scholar at Berkeley, has a fantastic book called uh, Carnal Israel, Reading Sex and Talmudic Culture. I just uh, looked at the index the other day to see where he mentions food in it, and he had a few uh, other than great quotes, some of which I knew, but he had a few good insights. He said he thinks the basic connections are as follows. Food is both about sustaining of life, but also about pleasure. And in that way, there is the parallel across. And he also had a very interesting one. Food is something which the Torah, and certainly the Talmud as well, um. It's pretty strict about what you can have and what you can't have. Mm-hmm. But once you can have it, then you can have it uh, how you like. And he th- suggested that carried across as well to how the rabbis view sexual life, too. And just sort of combining all of those ideas and your, your point as, as well, Jonah, I mean, it, it works. It, you sort of feel the connection here. And now when it gets very powerful, is that Moshe then seems to choose, I think, what is probably the ultimate image that connects food with sexual um, sexual imagery, which is, of course, breastfeeding. Mm. Right? I mean, literally, you've got the two coming together. Right? You've got... Mm. Where did he say that? Moshe... Well, says Moshe, Moshe the same like, yeah. I mean, it's, it's such amazing language. Moshe... Sorry, let me go down a little bit. Moshe oh, cries sorry. out to God, you've dealt so ill with me. Um, uh, Twelve, did I give birth to them? Did I carry oh. them that you should say to me, carry them? <laughs> Moshe is envisaging, envisioning the task which is given to him as breastfeeding this you know, people. That
5: kind of makes me, all, all that together kind of makes me think about feelings of safety. Like the Jewish people at this time they, they didn't feel safe. They didn't feel like God was taking care of them. That's because,
1: excellent. That's really excellent. It has
5: to, yeah, because like food and and those are all the kind of intimate things where it's like it, they bring about feelings of safety. You know,
1: brilliant. Very good, Jonah. You are you are looking at this though from the perspective of the people. Now I'm gonna. Uh, you haven't got your video on, but I'm gonna make a guess that you've never breastfed, um, before. <laughs> no. uh, and, and and of course <laughs> the. The, the verse is said by Moshe, meaning it's not the Jewish people saying, we need you to breastfeed us. OK. I mean, not, not that you're wrong at all. I think I think you're exactly right. But I'm also interested in turning it around. Yeah. Right. Because it's said by Moshe. And, um, you know, I, I feel that it's not really my place to say this. Uh, my wife has just left. Uh, and if anybody, else, anybody who does <laughs> have experience breastfeeding wants to take over from me at this point, you're, you're welcome to. But um, I do know we have two young children. Um, breastfeeding is not easy, hmm. um, not yeah. easy at all. Or if it is easy, then you're very lucky. Um, yeah, we spent a lot of money on a lactation consultant, and it didn't work. Um, it's it's uh, well, we're not, I, I won't go deep into it now. But it, just to just to really sort of sit with that idea, for for me, I think this is the most arresting image of all. There are in Humash of Moshe describing uh, the difficulties of, of his, his
5: his responsibility.
1: Responsibility. He can't get away from it. It's keeping them alive, but at such cost to his own. Oh, so
5: you're earthquake. saying that his, his relationship with God is what's supporting all the Jewish people?
1: No, sorry. His, his, he, well, he is crying out to God, saying this task you have given me of essentially being the mother and the breastfeeder of yeah. this people is too much for me.
5: Yeah, but did and of God course ever- it's not
1: just metaphor. He's literally being asked to provide them food.
5: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, by them,
1: yeah. Yeah. Okay, wow, this is so cool. Um, he says, where am I gonna get this meat from? <laughs> I can't carry them all alone. To me. And now look where it gets to 15 And if this is what you're going to make me do Kill me now I, I can't do this If you like me If I found favor in your eyes Kill me now I, don't, I can't live to see this wretchedness hmm. How's everybody is- doing? As my wretchedness, yeah, my, as, in, as in my wretched life, okay. Yes, sir.
3: I'm, I'm just wondering about um, Yitro coming to Moshe and saying that uh, they should he he basically should delegate all of his um judgments and and all the people coming to him with their individual complaints, um. Th- Moshe probably needed to have somebody come and tell him you don't have to take it all on upon you and okay. and there needs to be a way to delegate. Uh, I don't know, uh, was Moshe, um, I know he was an Anav and he, he was not uh, power hungry or anything, but he didn't know anything about delegating to somebody. I don't know if this is relevant, but I'm just thinking about
1: that. It's it's super, super relevant. Um, I I stopped the screen share, but I'll put the screen back on in a minute and you'll see it's relevant indeed in the very next verse. Moshe's um, cry of just enormous distress is responded to by God with, okay, we need to delegate. That is exactly what happened. The story with Yitro has been placed at least in the text much earlier in Shemot chapter 19 but we're going to see a a direct connection to it in a moment let's just um, take stock I mean I, I think you know listening to many of your comments I think you're feeling like I am sort of like how dramatic this story is I mean maybe we should have spent two whole classes just on this story but just to list off a couple of our questions which we're thinking with number one Why why the desire for meat, especially given that they are receiving the man already every day? I I think that was Beth who who raised that question. Number two, what's so bad about it? Why should God be so angry about it? And we're about to see just how angry he is. And number three, why does this, of all things, bring Moshe to such a crisis? Right. Right. Let's let's carry on. So now, Hashem, God, responds to Moshe's cry. Vayomer Hashem, el-Moshe, esfa li shivim ish mi Israel, gather 70 elders to me, esher yadata. exactly what you said. Exactly what you said, Sarah. Ki hem ziknei ha'am v'shot drav, officers of the people, v'lakakhat otam, okay, take them to, Place of meeting, 17. Yeah. I will descend and speak to you there. I will take from their spirit and place it upon Sorry, take from your spirit and place it upon them. They will share the burden with you. You will not be bearing it alone. Now look what happens. To so the people, mm. see. It. Prepare yourselves for tomorrow, sanctify yourselves. And then basar, then you shall eat meat. It's fascinating, right? You all heard vegetables, but Moshe heard meat, and God hears meat. Ha-am Hashem, because the people wept in God's ears, saying, Mi who will feed us meat? Ki tov lano for it was good in Egypt. Lachem basar if only we had meat.
5: Sorry, do you mind if I ask why? Why do you think that it, the meat is so important to that? Well, Jonah,
1: I'm building up the question, and we're going to come to it. All right. Precious. Okay. <laughs> we're, we're, we're getting through it all, and then we're going to come come back to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it, you, this is real. I think this is really a chapter which you've got to sort of like take it all and build it up and then and then take it apart again okay now you can read the verses which we just read at first it's like okay great god's going to give them meat they asked for meat they cried for meat god says i'll give you meat in the same way in which they've cried out for water in the past and god says yeah i'll give you water but it's not like that anybody see the interpretation that god has put upon their their language what does god add into it they had it better in Mitzrayim. The they they exactly they, the
3: sorry oh, they oh,
1: left. That was not, uh, I beg your pardon?
3: Uh hit kad shu?
1: Yes. To sanctify. Um prepare yourselves. Kadosh, yes. Yeah. We'll get okay. ready. We're gonna come back to that. Okay. I mean if it's been graphic until now, just wait. <laughs> <laughs> You're not gonna eat for a single day. Not two days. Not five days. Not 10 or 20 days. For a whole month you're going to eat meat. And I would apologize for the image if it weren't for the fact that it's in the Torah. Until it's coming out of your noses. It becomes loathsome to you. Since you spurned God from being in your midst, Why have you taken us out of Egypt? God clearly sees this request as a rejection of everything that has happened, as a rejection of him. Read a couple more verses and then finally we'll finish. A moshe Moshe now responds. 600,000 of them. And me in their midst. And you say, I'm going to give them meat. You're asking me to do this. Can I slaughter this for them? And they will find them all the fish of the sea. I mean, this wouldn't be enough. And the response, verse twenty-three, "Ayomer Hashem el Moshe, Hayad Hashem Tikzar," is the hand of God too short? It means literally, is there a limit to God's power? Atatire, you will see. Now we're not going to go into this too much, but the commentaries pull out these verses as really a statement of heresy on God's part. I'm sorry, on Moshe's part. Moshe has God has said, I'm gonna do this. Moshe has said, How on earth is this gonna happen? God says, Hayada you think I'm uh, you think I'm gonna be able to uh, you think I can't do this. Rabbi Akiva in the Midrash says, Why was Moshe not killed for this? Why was this not Moshe's punishment? And says only because it was both in private, unlike the striking of the rock. But in theory, that should have happened. And some Moshe it was even
2: him. worse than what the
1: what Ben Israel did. Right. Sorry. Who would, who
5: would he be punished for though, or who would he be punished by for saying this?
1: That? This lack of belief, Hayad uh-huh. Hashem Do you not think I can do this?
5: But isn't he the one who's inspiring the belief of God into the rest of the Jewish people? Are you saying that God would have punished him?
1: Well, that's yeah. that's that's oh. the paradox of being a Jewish leader. To both inspire, but when you're feeling yeah, I don't know. I, I guess good. I never
5: thought think about it that way. That that God would you punish someone?
1: Right. Okay, this has been pretty cool, right? So far, people people agree it's been pretty cool. Mm, um, yeah, cool. Okay, all we've done is read through the story. Now, I want to take it a couple levels further.
5: Um, oh, sorry, I, I'm not, I don't want to keep cutting you off, but um, even... <laughs> part, part of the reason why this <laughs> isn't related, but is because I think I might be incorrect about this, but in the Torah, whenever it says, that someone is, suffers because of their lack of belief in God. It's not because God punished them. It's because they end up suffering themselves. Do you know what I mean? Like, because they don't... God doesn't, you know, punish them for not having belief. They just end up punishing themselves because they're not serving their best interest.
1: Well, what Rabbi Akiva is referring to is that when Moshe does strike the rock, Ra, um, in, in that way, violating what God has asked him, he does, he does actually... Um, suffer for it. Um, okay. he, he's banned from entering into the land. Um, wow, I've got a lot to get through. We've got eighteen minutes left. Okay, we're uh, ready? for are people, people in the zone? Yeah. Okay, good. Um, I've got two commentaries I want to share. Um, I'll share one of them first, and then we'll do some. We'll do something else. We'll do some build up, and then come back to the next one. Um, there is a very fascinating Machlocket argument between Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Ishmael, two very important rabbis of the Mishnah. Their argument is as follows. During all of the years in the desert, was asar ta'ava, which basically means simply meat that you wanted to eat, was it allowed? Were they allowed to just have any meat they wanted? Rabbi Akiva says, yeah, they wanted to have meat, they could have it. And they did a version of shritah, which he calls nichira." Says Rabbi Yishmael, there was no such thing as simply deciding to have meat and eating it in the desert. Rather, what did they need to do? It needed to be a Korban. If you wanted to eat meat during the desert years, would offer it up as a korban. You'd bring it to the mishkan. The kohanim, the priests, would slaughter it. Just, I mean, this is like a deep halachic argument at the center of uh, Masechet Chulin, which we're not going to get into for now. but I just want you to live with Rabbi Yishmael for a minute. For forty years, there is no way of eating meat for the Jewish people except through. The procedure of Kulbanot, of a sacrifice. Just, it's such a fascinating um, take upon the desert experience. It's this ultimate um, period, this sort of like incubation period of the Jewish people, God in their midst in an unsown land. You're probably familiar with the verses. The people, God, you know, it's it doesn't have any of the distractions of sort of political life in the land. God's presence is basically manifest and the way in which they eat meat is they say they, they have kobanot. Um In fact, you know, the bracha we make on meat today is Shehakol, uh, which is sort of a strange thing. You might think that meat is so important that, um, that it should have its own special bracha, right? Wine has its own special blessing. Bread has its own special blessing. Grain products have their own special blessing. Shouldn't meat be one of that you know, hierarchy of foods? Mm. And here's the amazing thing. According to these opinions, there was a special bracha on meat. It was the bracha said, al hazvachim, upon bringing an offering. Now I want to share the following. Okay, This is the comment of the meshech chokhmah. Meshech chokhmah is Rabbi Meir Simcha kohen Meshach, of Davinsk. Um, yes, Davinsk is uh, Ukraine, I think. Belarus. Wonderful commentary on the Torah. He says as follows, and I, I felt, I, I thought of this verse, and I thought someone has to say it, and I found him saying it. It's so powerful. On our chapter, sorry, there's not a translation, I'll translate it. He they desired a great desiring. which is to say, afsha hayalahem bakar even though they had cattle and sheep in the desert, because, okay. nevertheless, they were prohibited from just simply having meat as they wanted. If they wanted to eat it, they need to bring it to the Mishkan, according to all of the procedures, the details of offering up offerings, and they had just this desiring. Right, we ate it for free. Free, he translates metaphorically as free from mitzvot. And right now, all that is is meat, but mitzvot with a thousand commandments. We can't, you know, all of this work in order to have it, right? Such a brilliant read. What is the hitavuta of? is this great desiring they had? They just want to eat meat as they can, naturally grab a burger, eat it. The, it's, I think the brilliance of it is it just, it captures like the intensity of the desert experience. Mm. Okay. Because, okay, have got 13 minutes left
5: think they want freedom
1: okay okay thank you for saying that jonah there are there are two paths we can take in the, in in how to interpret this what we're dealing with one of the ones possibly it comes out of the meshach it's comes out of the ramban Nachmanides, and it's similar to what jonah just said They wanted freedom. They didn't want the intensity. Right? They didn't want all of the requirements of it. Um, Michael Waltzer, wonderful political um, philosopher at Princeton, uh, very Jewish, wrote a lovely book called Exodus and Revolution, how the Exodus story has inspired revolutions throughout history. So he's got a comment on our... Um, on our chapter. Um, um, The wilderness wasn't only a world of austerity, also a world of laws, the whole legal system founded by Moses, the Dietary Code, etc. It was against all this that the people rebelled, remembering Egypt now as a house of freedom. Indeed, there is a kind of freedom in bondage, It is one of the oldest themes in political thought that tyranny and license go together. The childish and irresponsible slave or subject is free in ways the Republican citizen and saint can never be. And there is a kind of bondage and freedom, the bondage of law, obligation and responsibility.
5: To yourself, too.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, Freedom from it. That's one interpretation, okay? And it's a good interpretation. Um, Indeed, Judith, chinam without halachic obligations. I want to share what I think is actually a different, more complex reading of it. Let's go back to the source sheet. This is now the netziv. The netziv is a generation earlier than the meshech chokhmah. Rabbi Natan Svi Yehuda Berlin Commentary. Again, I'm so sorry about lack of translation, but I will translate it for you. I'm going to read to you a couple of comments of this. Mi yachilenu basal. Who will feed us meat? Shehu ikar hanatzuda, Which is, meat is the heart of the pleasure of the meal. Now he quotes a midrash, which I couldn't, couldn't, uh, couldn't not bring, just because it connects the two halves of today's class as is said in the Midrash about Esav, Li Yitzchak. When Esav finds out that Yitzchak has given Yaakov a blessing, he says, What did he feed you? And he says, Oh, he fed him meat. As soon as Yitzchak said meat, Esav cried, realizing, Well, if he's given you meat, then of course you've given him the bracha. Okay. Let's uh, see a couple of... Um, Other comments. You know what? No, I'm sorry. In fact, the best comment is not actually available in the text. Let me get my actual work of uh, of it. So, I'm reading to you from a a subline. He says, "Okay." Um, However, says the Nitziv, it doesn't say they left Har Sinai. It says they left Har Hashem, the Mountain of God. Shahaya b'datam su meha oneg. It was their intention to leave the oneg. Oneg means the delight, but it's also quite a it's quite a sensuous word. The sensuous delight, Shahayasham al Hashem, that there was there with God. They requested to leave the delights of being at Har Sinai. Ubikshu Lehitaneg al Mm. It's sought instead to oneg, to delight in what we would say the pleasures of the flesh, Mm -hmm. right? The delight of basal. Why is this different from the Ramban? Because it's not simply freedom as opposed to slavery and mitzvot. It's oneg and oneg. Basal, meat, represents an alternative oneg, an alternative sort of sensuous delight so the sensuous delight, which is being in God's presence at Hav Sinai. It's mm-hmm. not that simply Basar is the sort of like the profane, secular opposite of being in God's presence. It's almost a competition with it.
5: Very That's good. what
1: Natsib really gives us.
5: I agree. That's the interpretation that I, get, I got just from reading it.
1: Oh, fantastic. Well, if, if people, anyone wants to go deep on this, I highly recommend... This wonderful work by Aviva Zornberg. Zornberg. People know Aviva. Yeah. I mean, I yeah, think Muslim, I- uh, a good friend of ours and just tremendous, tremendous scholar. I mean, this is just, if you know anything about Aviva Zornberg, I mean, this is just, you know, a gift to her. She goes very intense on this chapter. Quite sort of well, well, throughout
5: the? Sorry. throughout She's... the Wasn't was God's purpose to, to make the, to allow or to help the jewish people live more holy lives right to to become more have more awareness
1: i mean, i missed the first half of your question and
5: the whole purpose of god was or god's you know relationship with the jewish people was to have them l- become more aware or to mm-hmm. live in a, a, a state of holiness
1: exactly and so and the pressure is too much but there's this desire for an alternative yeah a competition but, yeah
5: but it's Mm -hmm. not that god said they can't still have what they want it's just with a sense of awareness around it like with the blessing of the meat they just you know it wasn't that they weren't allowed to have meat it's just that they had to like be grateful for everything it's like living in a state of constant awareness
1: so i want to i want to share the following okay we've got a few minutes left and i want to just conclude it with this. Uh, Ayala, I'd be honored to email a a, a reading list. Um, um, If you want to stay on at the end, I'll I'll quickly share what it is and I can send Sarah um, a list as well. Okay, Um, I want to just do this because this is pretty cool, okay, to conclude with. This is very cool. We've seen these verses, right? Uh, I'm now sharing them in a different place. Moshe says, why do you lay all the burdens of the people on me? Did I conceive them? Did I give birth to them? Where am I going to get meat for them? Ha'genina, <laughs> kill me, in mm-hmm. Matsati ve'enecha. If I find favor in your eyes. The depth of this crisis for Moshe, this might remind us of another story. At the end of Shemot, where after the Egel Hazahav, the sin of the golden calf, God wants to wipe out mm. I mean, and start again with Moshe. And Moshe says exactly Macheni. Mm. Right? Mm. Yomir Hashem al-Moshe. Sorry. Um, mm. Yes, this people sin. Mm. Carry. You carry the burden of their sin. And if you don't then cut me out from your work. Kill me with it. Moshe says, Kill me if you're going to wipe out this people. If, you're, don't, if you don't want this people, then I don't want to be here. The next chapter by Yomel Moshe El Hashem. Moshe says to God, You've said to me, bring this people out of Egypt. You haven't told me how. And now, If I find favor in your eyes, right? Exactly the same phrase as in our chapter. Show me your way. So that I can take them out. In other words, at the end of Shemot, Moshe asks to die, he asks to find favour in God's eyes, both of those in order to save the Jewish people. But in Bamidbar, uh, he says, kill me now, if I find favour in your eyes, to get away from the Jewish people. That's the extent of the crisis. Now watch this, everybody, okay? this It's all been the build-up to this moment. Everything we've said until now, even including the previous class, is the build-up to the following. Mm -hmm. You see this verse, which we've read, back in Bamidbar 11. And to the people, he says, God says, prepare yourselves, sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, and then you will eat meat. That remind us of anything? Uh, this this before Matan Torah for three yeah. days. Exactly, we are in Shemok chapter nineteen. Sarah almost took us there earlier when she made the reference to Yitro, which is also this chapter or the previous chapter. Hashem <speaking in Spanish> el God says to Moshe, we are the eve of the giving of the Torah. I will come to you in the thickness of the cloud. So the people will hear me speaking with you. They'll believe in you forever. God says to Moshe, to go to the people, sanctify yourselves, prepare yourselves today and tomorrow. Be ready for the third day. God will descend. I'm not sure I know of any parallel in Chumash as powerful as this. This is being presented as a sort of reverse Matan Torah. The people are told to prepare themselves for a day which is to come in Shemot chapter 19. They're told to prepare themselves for a day which is to come in Bamidbar chapter 11. After this preparation, something is going to descend. In Shemot, it is God who is going to descend and God's word and the Torah, which is going to descend. In Bamidbar, it is the meat which is going to descend, but the meat which is going to be destructive of them. That is the sort of reverse anti-Matan tera. I think this reading is so strong to attach to the Natsiv, The Natsiv who reads the Basar as the competitor Ta'anug. There is Ta'anug of Lifnei Hashem, of being in front of God. The people have just left the mountain of God. And there is the Ta'anug of Basar. We have about 30 seconds left just to use this to wrap everything up. I think this is so amazing because it's, you know, the sensuousness, the delight, the power of food, which we crave, which we need, which is presented as something that can be so destructive, something which is sort of the reverse of Matantala. That's what this chapter gives us. And yet, the wonderful paradox is that this does not lead the Torah and Jewish practice following it to therefore view basar and food connectedly as something off limits, something dangerous, something which is to be banned. But actually, on the contrary, it is the ultimate mode of our uh, socializing in a ritual setting eating with one another, offering Torbanot, making a blessing on the food which we eat. And the, just the amazing sort of like paradox and tension of all of that boils down to this moment in Bamidbar. Thank you so much, everyone. This was lots and lots of fun. Um, I hope, uh, hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I, I really enjoyed getting to prepare and, and learn this stuff. Mm-hmm.
2: Thank you Rabbi, yeah. the classes were Thank wonderful. You
1: yes we learned so much thank you very much that's so very kind of you would people like the reading recommendations now yes sure mm-hmm. Sarah, Sarah does that work or do you need to can we morning? get the reading list
0: that's totally fine also if you would like to just email it to me and I can send it to anyone who registered for the class that works as well
1: okay oh I would like that yeah that's good too Fantastic. Okay. fantastic
2: um, okay I do come just back like, and teach us again.
1: Oh, well, you'll have to ask Sarah and the rest of the people <laughs> I think
0: me. I just did. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yes, to repeat what everyone is saying, thank you, Rabbi Wolfson, for this incredible two-part class. Um, thank you, everyone, for being here and for engaging so actively. Um, again, tonight is the last night of Drisha's Winter's Mon programming, and we are wrapping up with a session by Rabbi Neetle Sarna called These Are Old and Solvable Problems. Scarcity and Plenty in Joseph's Egypt and Nehemiah's Israel. Um, so you can find out about this class as well as our future programming at www.drisha.org classes. And again, thank you so much to everyone here today. Um, I hope you have a good rest of your day.